The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in December 2006. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. Today we're joined by Stephen Spinella. Hi, Stephen. Hi. Stephen, currently in this show on Broadway, was an off-Broadway show, Stephen has joined the cast of Spring Awakening, which is uh, the current Broadway show, but some other very good Broadway credits, both of the Angels in America shows, both of which you won Tonys for those. Yes. Congratulations on that, Thank Angels you. in America, um, both Perestroika and Millennium Approaches. Also other Broadway shows, including Our Town, Revival, uh, James Joyce's The Dead, uh, Electra, and A View from the Bridge. Mm-hmm. I think to start off, we'd better tell the radio audience what Spring Awakening is. That it was written in 1891 by Frank Vitekind, and it's a coming-of-age story. Yeah, I mean, actually, uh, it was, um, uh, it's a bit of a scandal. In fact, you cannot produce um, it as written in New York State because um, there is simulated masturbation and uh, simulated sex in the play. Uh, between uh, 13 and 14 year old kids and it is illegal in New York State for anyone under 17 to simulate sex on stage so to actually produce that show to produce that play with people who are of the appropriate age is illegal in this state so the actor has to be at least has to be at least 17 years old Uh has to be 17 years old um, it was never done in English until um, – it was never done in Britain until 1970 in an Edward Bond translation and uh, never done in the United States uh, until the 50s in, in an accurate translation. Uh, it, um, it, it's uh, – you know, it's it, – the play itself, the, the original Vedekind is, is um, you know, a, a kind of – mix of naturalism and expressionism and very non-episodic. Vedekin was crazy about the circus, so he loved the idea of things happening uh, uh, separate from each other, that the story that there was no narrative through line or no uh, um, uh, story that you followed through the play explicitly. Um, and what we've done in the musical or what Michael and Stephen Sater and Duncan Sheik have done is they've created more of a through line. You follow one main character through the story and uh, a 15-year-old boy who um, is somewhat of a rebel. And uh, at the center of the play, he has sex with a 14-year-old girl. And... Uh, um, and an ancillary story or two ancillary stories of what happens to the 14-year-old girl and what happens to um, uh, Melchior, who is the main character, his best friend Moritz. Um, uh, and then, you know, the stories of all the kids around them. And they, they tell the stories using contemporary uh, rock idioms so that they they sing their internal life using contemporary rock music but the mores uh, remain and the, the the setting of the play still remains in 1890 uh, in, in, Germany. in Germany in Germany yes, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. and so they we're all wearing period costumes and and uh, and speaking in um, late 19th century uh, uh, vernacular. And uh, uh, and then I 
and uh, Christine Estabrook and I play the adult characters. All of the she plays the adult women. I play the adult men, which amounts to about seventeen different characters that we play between us. And what, what, what sorts of characters do you play? Oh God, I play, I play a, a kind of a quack doctor. I play a somewhat sadistic um, uh, uh, Latin teacher, and then a truly monstrous headmaster. I play f- four parents. I play yeah four different fathers, uh, and a priest, and uh, and an abortionist. And all of that while being in full view of the audience, so you don't make any real costume no, changes. No, no, yeah, I, yeah. I wear the same thing all yeah, the way yeah, through, and yeah. there's no like you know, you know now, now I put on a funny nose or anything like that. <laughs> so it's, uh, uh, I mean, that's part of the conceit of the show is that uh, everything is done in full view of the audience. There's nothing hidden. It's got to be an interesting situation. Mentioned at the beginning that you've joined the show. You were not in the show down at the Atlantic Theater Company, nor was Christine Esterbrook. Yet the Young Company really is is the same group. It's enough that you're coming in playing all of these authority figures. But here are you and Christine joining this company. What's what's that process been like for you, relating to where there's this obvious generation gap that's portrayed on stage, and to some degree? For you as actors with this younger younger gang, well, I, uh, to some degree, I have felt like I need to figure out from the performances that the kids that I saw them giving in the rehearsal room. I needed to figure out, okay, now what is what is that character's father like, and what is um, this other character's father like, and um, so I tried to mold my character to uh, what. I saw them doing so that I could convincingly play that character's father in the, you know, seven sentences that I have as that character's father. Um, but the other thing that I did, I spent a lot of time sort of, uh, I had the script for about six weeks before I started rehearsal. And my first process is always with the writer. And so I tried to, I essentially meditated on a couple of scenes um, uh, thought very deeply about um, what the writer was doing in the scene and what the writer was asking me to do in the scene and without it before I even got into rehearsal so that I could have a connection to the text so that I can have a connection to the way the writer composes the characters and that that is how I always work and so I started with that and then the other thing I also did is I uh, I read I guess three different translations of the Vedicand so that I could have a different um some different ideas about um the parents um and and the the uh the various characters that I play and also how they function in the Vedicand because the Vedicand is a sprawling kind of non-narrative epic um the the musical the thing that we're doing the show that we're we've that we've made is a much more um uh, a much more narrative play and uh and so w- what i tried to understand was uh the way the parents functioned in the vedic and and how much of that translates into what we're doing um uh at the eugene o'neill and um so uh, so I spent a lot of time meditating on what the what the author wrote, what the what Stephen Sater wrote, and um, and then I went into rehearsal and just did what I always usually do in rehearsal, and that is, you know, 
just tried to have a personal relationship with you know the person I'm acting with and and uh, and the words that I'm saying. Listening to you, the process that you're talking about sounds like the process of an actor approaching wholly a dramatic text um, in terms of the research and the other sources, et cetera, et cetera. Certainly this is not a brassy Broadway musical. Your other Broadway musical experience, James Joyce's The Dead, was also very literary-based. Is going into a musical an unusual thing for you, or is your approach the same? Well, honestly, my approach is always the same. Um, I, I can only do it one way. I mean, you, you pull out different tools, but um, it's it's pretty much the same. Um, this is uh, – The Dead was a non-presentational musical, um, which was incredibly radical. Uh, we, we sang with our backs to the audience. It, it took place in the home of music teachers, and it was a party at the home of music teachers uh, at the turn of the century in Dublin. And – um, so they would get up and they would sing for each other. And the convention of the play, the convention of the musical, um, the non-naturalistic convention was that we were singing for ourselves and not f- – there was a true fourth wall is what I'm saying. In this, it's a presentational musical, which is what we're used to. Um, but it's a it's a naturalistic, that's the oddest thing. It's a, it's a strange amalgam of many different styles that um, miraculously, you know, I, I think that's why, in a way, it's so powerful because people are so surprised that so many things that shouldn't work together do work together in Spring Awakening. Um, but uh, again, we're we're doing a presentational musical, yet it's still naturalistic. And so we're not uh, – there's uh, – so, so I still needed to approach the scenes um, the way I would approach any kind of um, uh, naturalistic acting. And, uh, you know, I mean, I guess I, I sort of I, – I mean, I would approach anything the same way. I mean, if it was a comedy or even if I was doing Kiss Me Kate, I would still approach it um, – the same way with, you know, with other things, you know, with other ideas in mind uh, in terms of style and presentation and that sort of thing. But I would still, you know, try to create a real internal life and and uh, 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 connect with the other actors and all of that. But the, the really important difference between um, The Dead the only other musical I've done on Broadway and uh, Spring Awakening is the difference between um, Richard Nelson, who directed The Dead, and Michael Mayer, who's directing Spring Awakening. Michael's uh, 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 expertise at doing a musical, his real deep understanding of what a musical is and how that functions differently from a play uh, is... is uh, very, very powerfully evident when you work with him on a musical. I mean, I did Long Day's Journey into... Uh, I'm sorry. Um, what was the name? View from the Bridge with him. And uh, uh, there, you know, we were doing a play. And, you know, so I know what it is to do a play with him and I know what it is now to do a musical with him. And you are always conscious that you are doing a musical when you do a musical with Michael. Everything... Um, Everything is finally focused 
to the idea that you are doing a play that has that is a central element of which is the music and you you are never allowed to forget that and things are scripted uh to the music and uh uh everything is blocked to the music um whenever it is possible and you you are you never forget that you are in a musical when you do a musical with michael and and there's a there, so there's a different quality of um of uh rehearsal that you have i mean it's like the number of things where i have to count 3 4 5 6 step step speak you know i mean that kind of stuff i you know <laughs> it's it, 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 it's very confusing and incredibly difficult for me because i don't do that naturally um but you've got to do it when you do a musical with michael because that is he demands that of you because it needs to work with that kind of precision to what the composer is bringing as well as the, the book writer. Well, what's interesting is he and, and the composer and book writer have taken a late 19th century story with the mores of the late 19th century, the Victorian era essentially, uh, the 1890s in Germany, not even in this country, in Germany, and combine that coming-of-age story with early 21st century rock music Absolutely. and the sensibilities we currently have. Exactly. So, but I would, what I would argue is that what, what they've really done is they've taken a play which is uh, about the false morality, a play where the central issue is the false morality of uh, the adult generation. And they have uh, turned it into a musical in a period of time where we live with a profoundly false morality, um, uh, you know, I mean, uh, with our president and with uh, certain segments of the political community, um, that there is a powerful false morality in this country that we have suffered under, I mean, I would argue, for the last six years. And so we're doing a play um, that uh, mirrors, in a way, what we have lived through for the past six years. Was there any discussion then during the rehearsal process about how Michael Mayer was interpreting it or Steven Sater or uh, Duncan Sheik? No, that matter? no, no. I, and, and, you know, I mean, I think, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I think if the script is good, if the script does what it needs to do, you don't need to have those conversations. Uh -huh. You just you just do what's on the page. And and knowing Michael and now knowing Steven, I know that um you know, certain elements of the story are um, are things that they they understand the political political ramifications of of putting this on stage now. Um, and then there was another. There's a whole other element that um, that has shifted, um, albeit uh, not in a pronounced way, but has uh, shifted uh, enough that you will notice it. And that is that the the um, how would I say this? De the deheroizing of Melchior, the the central character, um, he does make very very serious mistakes in the story, and uh, which is clearer in the Vedicand, and or was clearer than the script I originally got. And through a uh, a series of conversations with Michael and Stephen Sater and Christine, the four of us thinking and talking about it, he's reinstated some scenes for us where we where we 
bring up the issues uh, of um, where Melchior has made serious mistakes and where he is culpable for what has happened in the play uh, to other characters. When you say reinstated, you mean scenes that have been cut originally for the off-Broadway well, version? No, 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 no. no. What I'm saying is that in the Wiedekind, um there is a very uh, powerful scene between um, the parents of Mel- Melchior's parents mm-hmm. And where they discuss as to whether they discuss whether Melchior should be sent to a reformatory, mm-hmm. and that scene was not in um, uh, the uh, off-Broadway version with the kind of dialogue that it has now in the Broadway version. In the Broadway version, it, they're much harder on on Melchior as they are in the Vedicand. The argument to send him to the reformatory is much stronger because they bring up things that he very obviously did uh, uh, that, that, that he did that were very obviously inappropriate and just just downright wrong. Hmm. And, and it needed that kind of balance. He, he needed to be humanized. He's such, he's, he, he can be so idealized and um, and it needed that kind of balance. And there are a couple of other things that they add in, they've added in that take them down a couple of notches, um, which I think just adds to the complexity and beauty of the story. Um, you know, I mean, all of that stuff is, you know, why we go to the theater, because we want to see, we want to see something that, that, you know, brings life to, you know, brings real life to, 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 um, to the story, you know. I mean, we we want to see complexity and detail and 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 truth. So, moving off of Spring Awakening, we want to talk about some of your other work. And certainly, for many people, they would go right to Angels in America. But I want to start with the fact that Angels in America was not certainly the first time that you had worked with Tony Kushner. Oh no! And my so, God. can you tell us about the work with Tony? Prior to Angel, certainly there was the production of The Illusion off-Broadway, but you actually knew each other in college. Um, Tony and I were both at NYU together, and I was in the acting program. He was in the directing program. Um, we met in the, um, in the student lounge uh, over an argument about the um, relative merits of the New York Review of Books versus the Village Voice. And, <laughs> Which side were you on? I, I, I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. Um, but um, anyway, so we, we are – actually, no, I'm not embarrassed. I was with the New York Review of Books, and he was with the Village Voice, for God's sake. And But back then, it was a much uh, – well, I don't know if I can say it. Back then, it was a much um, less disreputable rag. Um, uh, there goes that review. Um, but uh, he, he then directed uh, something – that we did, uh, and then he wrote a play that he asked me to be a part of during the summer, The Age of Assassins, about the seven anarchist assassinations at the turn of the century. And, uh, and then we just, you know, we started forming theater companies and doing plays together. Um, he wrote um, uh, The Heavenly Heavenly Theater and Bright Room Called Day and uh, Hydriotophia and... Uh, and then um, Bright Room Call Day was commissioned by uh, – was uh, then produced at the Eureka Theater and they asked him if he had uh, any ideas for a gay play and and he had been talking to me about a gay play he wanted to do 
and uh, they eventually commissioned it, and that became Angels in America. Well, how much, obviously, given that relationship and over time, how much input did you have? Was it always that he was writing Prior Walter for you? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, so what was your role as that enormous play that he lugged around for a number of years before it got produced? What was, you know, did you did you have the opportunity during the development of it to to really participate in where it was going? Um yeah. I mean, well, I mean, he wrote it he wrote it to my to my voice. So, uh I was, you know, I did all the readings and all that, you know, the workshops, the, you know, half dozen workshops we did on that and and uh i mean we started i think we did our first workshop of that in 1988 and uh you know i mean it 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 was you know always going to be it, it, well what happened was the eureka in order for the eureka to commission it he had to write it for the company of the eureka and the eureka was three women and one man this is the eureka theater in san francisco in san francisco right. and because he was originally writing angels to be a play with five men in it there were going to be no women he now had to change the idea and include three women in it and that's why there are three women in angels in america because he he had to incorporate in order to get the commission from the Eureka Theater, the acting company of the Eureka Theater Company. And uh, and that is another reason why the play became so huge, because if you're going to add three women's voices to a play about gay men, um, you have to give them enough room to say what they think or what you think they may think. And uh, it ended up being, you know... Uh, two evenings and seven hours. It kind of makes it into a different play, I guess, because you've added these, it, uh, these other voices. It shifted the play significantly. Other, other viewpoints. Yeah, exactly. It shifted the play significantly. I don't think that he originally conceived there would be an angel in Angels in America. I don't I don't know that, but uh, I don't remember that being in any discussion that we had originally of the play. When we first talked about the play, he said he wanted Mormons in it, he wanted Roy Cohn in it, and he wanted AIDS to be an issue in it. Hmm. And... That's all I remember talking about. Now, when he was writing it, he had you in mind for the, the for the part, and he obviously did not have the women. What about the other four men? Did he have specific actors not that in I'm mind? Not that so I'm you were the only one that he really had in mind that he was creating. A role I think so. Around yeah. you, and, and then you. when it was commissioned by the, when it was commissioned by Eureka, uh, there was an actor at the Eureka that he was writing for, as well as the three actresses mm-hmm. at the Eureka. So, so when he was. Playing with, improving it, whatever he was doing to it, he was writing for them. He was writing for their voices. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it would have been a very different sort of a play. Do you think it wouldn't have been seven hours long? Probably. Well, I don't know. But the uh, two combined. You obviously. know, I mean, I don't, I don't know if it w- would or I don't know what it would have been if it hadn't have been commissioned by the Eureka. I don't know that it would have ever happened. But um, um, that's. That was part of the gestation of that play. Then how did it move from there to Los Angeles and then to New York eventually? Well, what happened is Oscar Eustace, who now is the artistic director of the public, um, was the artistic director of the Eureka Theater. He was then hired by Gordon Davidson to go down uh, and work in at the Taper, the Mark Mar- Taper, Mar- Taper Forum. Yeah. And uh, 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 Oscar took it to the Taper. And so we did several workshops at the Taper. It was commissioned by the Eureka, so we had the world premiere, at least, of Millennium at the Eureka, as well as um, 
reading of sections of Perestroika because it wasn't completed yet. And then we had the first world premiere of the entire play at the Mark Taper. In the meantime, wasn't there an English production? There was. In, in, the, in the midst of all of that? Yes. Uh, 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 Anthony Schur, this is my understanding, Anthony Schur was interested in playing Roy Cohn. Uh, they found out that there was a play with Roy Cohn in it uh, uh, being done at the Eureka. They asked to see a copy of it. Um, the National Theater got a copy of it. Anthony Schur wasn't interested in playing that version of Roy Cohn. Cohn and uh, but they loved the play, so they they um, they decided to do. They just did the first half. They just did Millennium, and uh, and then they did that production of Millennium. And then I believe it was right. That, that happened in like February and then we did the full production of both parts for the first time. Uh, we started rehearsing that uh, for the Mark Taper in August and opened that in November. Mm. And then after we opened, I believe, Perestroika in New York, they uh, did Perestroika at um, the National. But you talk about Tony Kushner wanting to have Mormons in it wanting to have eventually angels in it and Roy Cohn. And what, AIDS. And AIDS. Yes. And what was the, what was the actual storyline? Oh. <laughs> well, there well, goes so, the rest so, of the you, show. You know, so, I, so, seven hours condensed to about a minute. Uh, what was the, what, that it ended up? What, well, well, what yeah, was the storyline yeah, yeah, we ended up with? Yeah, for, for, the, for the audience who hasn't seen the show. Oh, God. I mean, we're how talking about Mormons. How do you get Mormons involved with this? I mean, Well, I mean, it's it's... Essentially, there, there, there are two couples, uh -huh. um, a Mormon couple and a gay couple. Um, the gay couple, um, the, the, uh, the two people, the, the, the guy in the Mormon couple is, uh, is really gay, and uh, he meets one of the people in the gay couple. They start a relationship. Um, the other person in the gay couple is, uh, has AIDS. There's a breakup. Um, and the young Mormon lawyer um, is working for Roy Cohn, and um, mayhem ensues. Um, I don't know. So he he did manage to combine it all. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, the proof is in the pudding. Um, it's all there. You've talked about really it sounds like a five or six year period over which this play was developed, and of course, it came to Broadway as such a landmark show. Um, what is it like to have a show be a part of your life for for that much time and to ultimately, uh, well deservedly, be ultimately met with such acclaim? How did how did that affect you as an actor? Well, I mean, just sort of baldly in terms of my career, it, it started my career. I, I didn't really have a career in New York until that play hit. Um, I remember. Uh, Starting, you know, we we started previews and we started performing on Broadway, and uh, just the just the sheer amount of attention we we were getting. I mean, because of the show, subject matter, and because I think in part because Frank Rich had reviewed it both in London and in Los Angeles, and both times written like you know the review of the decade for 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 all the productions, and uh, um, so it. It, it hit New York like a sledgehammer. I mean, it was just, it was going to be the thing. It was the big thing that was coming in. And 
I had never been on Broadway before. I had never had a job in New York City where I had made more than probably $250 a week. And um, I was coming in in this huge part in this incredibly high-profile play, and it, you know, it changed everything. And, you know, that was my first experience of what it was like to be on Broadway. I thought it was always going to be like that, and it's not. Um, uh, but um, in 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 another sense, you know, I mean, you spend a certain amount of the years after that, um, sort of. Uh, living in its shadow, you you uh, the first thing still to this day the first thing people remark to me uh, when they when they meet me if they've seen me in something you know they just saw me in you know whatever Spring Awakening or The Dead and oh we loved you in this and I just have to say how much I loved you in Angels in America and you know it 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 is something that yeah, I'm very incredibly proud of and I'm incredibly proud that I was a part of it. Um, and yet it's also something that I will spend the red rest of my life living up to, um, spend the rest of my life, you know, trying to, uh, uh, have another experience of, uh, such power and import as, as that was. Um, so, you know, I mean, I have, I have, I, I, I feel like, you know, I have personal favorites, um, that I feel like are, are uh, like the dead. I feel like that was uh, an incredibly powerful experience for me. And I, I, I feel the same way actually now about Spring Awakening. It's, it's been an incredibly powerful experience for me. Um, uh, and the measure for all of those things is always what happened with angels mm -hmm. because it was so profound and it's such an important play. Um, it's such a milestone in American theater history. And uh, um, such a such a profoundly important moment in my life. Well, does that does that put pressure on you then in selecting future roles like the current Spring Awakening, no. anything like that? Actually, I think the reverse is actually true. I think I am incredibly blessed because people uh, see angels as a kind of um, I don't know a kind of hallmark of of. Um, a standard of sorts for me and and they don't offer me a lot of you know <laughs> mediocre stuff right. I d certainly for the theater I almost never get offered anything that I that I walk away from because it's mediocre I usually get offered stuff like Spring Awakening or The Dead um, stuff that is rigorous and smart and um, has a has a kind of uh, profound heart to it, um, something that um, uh, is is a l little off from the 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 regular commercial fare that you'd mm -hmm. see in New York. I mean, like I, you know, I did I did Electra with uh, Zoe Wanamaker. You know, I did uh, a Greek tragedy on Broadway, and uh, you know, I mean, how many people get to say that? And and then I got to do, you know, I got to do Our Town, which I think is one of the most beautiful plays in the English language. I think it's really a profoundly beautiful play. And I got to do it with Paul Newman. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and that was that was an incredible feast. Um, so I've gotten I've, I've gotten really, really wonderful things offered to me. Um, and I think that's in part because of um, of angels. 
as you talk about the opportunities, when I was doing some research uh, before this interview, I had not realized that you were in the original company of Love, Valor, Compassion at Manhattan Theater Club, another acclaimed show came right in the wake of Angels in Literally, America. Literally, I started rehearsal. I had one day off. I left Angels in America. I had one day off, and then I started rehearsal for Love, Valor, Compassion. But as you talk about how a career goes along, I have to ask, why were you not in the Broadway production? Oh, that was just, that was scheduling. Um, they didn't decide to move it to Broadway until after we opened. Um, the, I don't. I think they didn't know what an incredible sensation that was, and I had al- already accepted a part in a movie, and I, you know, I, it, it was, it was, an incredibly difficult decision. I, but I, I had already, you know, given a verbal agreement that I would do this movie, and, uh, and I couldn't. I felt like it would be inappropriate to back out, and. Um, and you know, uh, they were all very nice at the Manhattan Theater Club about it, and I was, you know, heartbroken that I couldn't go with, you know, my fellow actors and do it on Broadway. And you know, and they went; they were the next show in the Walter Kerr after Angels in America. So I would have just, I would have gone right back to the Walter Kerr. So there would have been a kind of, you know, poetry in it too. But um, I had already given my. I already agreed to do this movie, so and I gotta say, you know, I still get residual checks from the movie, so, <laughs> so it wasn't a terrible decision. In that period, there was the opportunity, and you you certainly had it, to be part of two plays which dealt very strongly with gay themes. Was was that in any way a, a political choice for you, or was it simply these were roles that were offered? No, <laughs> no, not at all a political choice. I mean, um, Joe and I were doing Angel. Joe Mantello uh, played Lewis opposite me in uh, in uh, Angels on Broadway, and and he, the next thing he was going to do was direct Love, Valor, Compassion at the Manhattan Theater Club, and. Um, I literally said to him as we were walking to lunch between shows one day, I said, well, is there is there a part for me in it? And he said, well, I, you know, why don't you read it and why don't you look at this part? And uh, and so I, I read it and I really, really liked it. And I looked at this one part and and uh, I went in and I read the part for Terrence McNally and, and you know, and they asked me to do it. So. So literally, I, I started rehearsal on that the day after. It was like there was nothing political about it. It was really just the the basics of you know, you know, when this closes, I'm going to need a job. So and and a good thing you did. You won the Obie Award for it. I did. Yes, I won an Obie. We all won an Obie. It was uh, it was an Obie for the for the entire ensemble. Uh-huh. So we all won Obies. As we talk. We've been talking, we keep mentioning classical work, the opportunity to do Electra. We look at some of the off-Broadway work, um, shows in the park. Um, View from the Bridge, which we touched on earlier, people even talked about how that production in some ways has always been, seemed like a tragedy. And I think in Michael's production, he almost seemed to emphasize the, the Greek nature of that. Well, I think that uh, I I think that he is just emphasizing something that uh, Arthur wrote into it. I think that uh, Arthur's um, I, I mean, I, Arthur makes it very apparent in 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 talking about it that there was this kind of undercurrent of uh, uh, the the tragic structure of a uh, of one of those great plays. 
Um, I also think that, you know, and I don't think that Michael gets enough credit for this. I think that um, that production was was one of the things I think that brought I mean, Arthur Miller has always had an incredible career in in London. And but there was a period in the 80s and the early 90s where he wasn't done very much in this country. And I think that production had a lot to do with um, showing this country again what a what a truly amazing playwright Arthur Miller was. And right after that happened, right after that production, um, you started seeing well, um, uh, you started seeing the productions from Chicago come in of uh, uh, of all of Arthur's plays. And you know, I mean, that great Death of a Salesman that they. Had and and yeah, I mean it's you know I mean there was a there was a revival almost, and I think uh, a certain amount of it is directly related to um, the incredible work that Michael did on that production. And you know I mean it was Anthony LaPaglia and Allison Janney played the wife. Yet curiously, and, not not as well known as they are today no, from no. their television work. Exactly. Fabulous actors, exactly. And they gave really phenomenal. And and Brittany Murphy played the girl. And in absolutely gorgeous performance. I mean, subtle and and simple and and humble, and it, it's such a beautiful performance. And people forget, uh, you know. I mean, there there was there there was a lot of buzz about that production when that production hit. Um, and then and then I got to do uh, and then in the park I got to do a really beautiful production of um, Troilus and Cressida. Which is, you know, really one of my favorite things, only because it was so that play is so insane, and it was, it was such a pleasure working on. It. Mark Wing Davy directed, and and we had a brilliant company, and uh, uh, and it was, you know, I mean, he's Mark was an actor before he was a director, and so you really felt like you were with somebody who talked to you like an actor and who really made you do things. Um, uh, because he, because he was an actor and he understood how to do them, um, that was a that was a phenomenal production. We've been talking mostly theater. We've made a couple brief allusions to film and even television. You've done film. You've done quite a bit of television itself. Any preference, stage versus film versus television? Nope. I like it all. As long as the I like to mix it up. In, uh, I like to do. All, I like to do as really? many different kinds of things. And you know what else I really love doing? I love doing audio books. I you know I I just there's some there's a real pleasure in sitting in a studio and just and having to do everything with your voice. There is a real pleasure in that. And I love doing television. I I had a great time on 24 um last season and uh and I love doing film. I love the 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 kind of um you know, I mean film is f- film can have such wonderful luxurious detail in it and and you get you get a little more time to meditate on on um, your performance and and uh, get it right and uh, I like doing it all. I like everything. Well, you're getting to do a lot of it in uh, Spring Awakening. Various multiple different adult men characters yeah, that you nine play. Nine different guys. Nine different characters. Stephen Smell, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Oh well, thank you for having me. 
Thanks, Stephen. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing, more than 400 hours of it, is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap, and thank you. <laughs>